Welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in for the show. It's our first of 2024. If you missed our final episodes of 2023, do check them out after this one. We finished the year with a few really good discussions, including on state housing policy with the State Assembly Housing Committee Chair, Linda Rosenthal of Manhattan. Also on the recent ruling by New York's top court that the congressional redistricting process will continue and what comes next. That was with Jeff Weiss of New York Law School and on the debates over the New York City budget with New York City Council Finance Chair Justin Brannon. So check any or all of those out and many other prior conversations at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, quite possibly wherever you're listening to this one. Uh, and we had some other great conversations in December and prior as well. As I announced in December, we're now coming to you from New York Law School, where I've recently begun as executive editor and program director for the Center for New York City Law, and we'll be enhancing the center's events and publications, including more reporting and commentary on New York policy, government, and law. And the conversations on New York City and state politics and policy continue here on Max Politics, now produced at New York Law School. Today, we are focusing on the start of the legislative and budget session in Albany. My guest who will join me shortly is State Senator Zellner Myrie, a Brooklyn Democrat. It is, as we're speaking here, January 4th, the day after the first day of the 2024 legislative session in Albany, when the members of the State Senate and Assembly began what is typically a six month or so legislative and budget session working in part with the governor, and Governor Kathy Hochul has begun to lay out her 2024 agenda. The governor, now in the second year of the four-year term she won in 22, will deliver her 2024 State of the State Address on Tuesday, January 9th, which will lay out her policy priorities in more detail, and then she'll present her executive budget later this month, forming the twin pillars of her agenda that the legislature will then consider as the two houses which both feature Democratic supermajorities, also lay out their own priorities and begin to pass legislation and craft their one-house budget plans. As the state government work for the year begins, many are hoping to see more action out of Albany on a few issues, especially, particularly the top crisis facing the state, especially New York City and its suburbs, which is the housing crisis and its many Tentacles, a topic we continue to devote a lot of time to here on the show, given its importance and how many pieces there are to that puzzle. But there's also a lot more on the plate of legislators and the governor who must agree on a $200 plus billion budget by April 1st, and they will look to tackle a wide variety of issues in this session. So today on the show, we're continuing to dig into what's ahead in the 2024 session in Albany. State Senator Zell Normyri is with me. He's a Brooklyn Democrat, chair of the Senate's Election Committee. He's worked on a variety of voting and other democracy issues during his thus far five-year tenure in the Senate, but also issues related to criminal justice reform, housing, and more. Senator Myrie has already put forward a few of his priorities for 2024 that we'll discuss here on the show today. And just the day before we're speaking here, he published an op-ed in City Limits, calling for a comprehensive housing package to pass this year in Albany, while also throwing his support behind a plan 
for hundreds of new housing units in his district. That is the 20th state Senate district, which includes all or some of the neighborhoods of Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, East Flatbush, Prospect Lefferts Gardens, Park Slope, Kensington, and Windsor Terrace. Senator Myrie took the seat by first winning a contentious 2018 Democratic primary that was part of a wave of primaries that year against a group of sitting state senators who had formed a power-sharing agreement with Republicans, a group known as the Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC. Through the handful of wins in those races and then flipping several seats in the 2018 general election, Democrats took the majority in the state Senate for the first time in roughly a decade and thus full control of state government. So we're now in year six of Democrats having the governor's office and majorities, now super majorities, in the Assembly and the Senate. And they've passed a massive number of priorities into law during that time. I should also note, as we bring Senator Myrie on, that the district, in a somewhat different shape given redistricting, was represented in the past by now Mayor Eric Adams. Then, as Adams ascended to the Brooklyn Borough Presidency, his chosen successor, Jesse Hamilton, was the state senator for the district. He joined the aforementioned Independent Democratic Conference, and Hamilton was then defeated in the 2018 primary by now Senator Myrie, who I lastly will add is now one of a number of New Yorkers who are being considered or are considering a run against Mayor Adams in the 2025 Democratic primary for mayor, now only one and a half years away in June 2025. So we'll touch on a whole lot of this with Senator Myrie in this conversation. First, let's dig in on what's happening in Albany, the start of the legislative session and the senator's priorities. Senator Zellner Myrie, welcome. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Happy New Year, Ben. Uh, happy New Year to the listeners. Uh, really good to be with you. Always a pleasure. And congrats again uh, on the new position. Really excited to see what you're going to be doing at the center. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And Happy New Year to you as well. So let's start with housing. It's the big topic on so many people's minds and agendas. And you just published, as I mentioned, this op-ed in City Limits, which listeners should check out. Um so in the in the op-ed, you write, New York needs a comprehensive, all-of-the-above approach to relieving the enormous pressures felt by renters and owners alike. And you add, it's clear that massively expanding housing supply combined with strong tenant protections like good cause eviction will increase affordability for everyone and relieve pressure on already scarce housing. So a comprehensive package. We heard your leader, Andre Stewart-Cousins, say something similar in her opening remarks on uh, the day before we're speaking here. So that was on January 3rd. What should be the big pillars of a comprehensive housing package that comes out of Albany this year in your in your view? Well, you know, as you mentioned, both in the intro and, and describing what we wrote in the op-ed, uh, what is uncontested, undisputed, uh, regardless of which New Yorker you talk to, uh, is that the most pressing issue facing them is their ability to find an affordable place to live. Uh, I can say as a government official, it is also undisputably the number one constituent complaint that we receive. Uh, and also it was the animating principle behind why I ran for office in the first place. Uh, I grew up in a rent regulated apartment and the laws uh, governing rent regulation were up for renewal, uh, you know, infamously in, in 2019. 
Uh, and we were able uh, to pass the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act uh, to try to stabilize that section of the market. Uh, but the rent regulated section of the market is just one piece of that. Uh, there is, of course, uh, market rate uh, apartments, which uh, m most New Yorkers uh, live in. And in order to relieve pressure for everybody, uh, for the entire ecosystem of housing. Uh, we can't just deal with the rent regulated uh, market, which we did in 2019, but we also have to be serious about what we're doing in that space. And that requires a couple of things. Uh, one, it, it we have to ensure that the ability for uh, developers to build uh, is not unnecessarily encumbered. Uh, I don't think that it should be a free for all of development. I am born and raised in my district. Uh, I have seen many, many a building go up, uh, certainly within the last two decades, uh, and we have seen it at a rapid pace. The data backs that up. Thousands of units created on the east side of the park where I grew up in my district. Uh, but that has not been the story across the city, uh, nor has it been uh, the story on some uh, levels on, on the west side of the park, uh, hence my support uh, uh, broadly for uh, a plan uh, that would have everyone share the burden. And in order to do that, you need uh, some rezonings. Uh, you need to have some tough conversations about the bureaucracy that prevents some of this construction from happening. Uh, but we also have to do this in tandem uh, with protections for tenants, uh, with greater incentives, uh, financial uh, to build. I have been in the past an opponent of the old version of 421A, which I think was not the best deal for the taxpayer. Uh, it allowed for development to happen with tax incentives, but the affordability piece, the amount of uh, units where people from my community could afford to go into, uh, that was not uh, appropriate. Uh, and so I think we have now arrived uh, at a stage in the conversation where we can uh, have a yes and approach to this. Yes, we need to allow for easier construction. We need to allow for a more transparent process, uh, but we also, and, and we need to add financial incentives to build, uh, but we also have to endeavor uh, to protect uh, as many tenants uh, as possible. We can have both of these conversations at the same time. Uh, it has been difficult uh, to do so with some of the politics around some of the proposals. Uh, but frankly, I think as leaders, as government officials, uh, we would be derelict in our duty uh, to come back at the end of this session with nothing for New Yorkers on this front. Mm. I think there's a lot of sentiment to that regard. But then, of course, uh, you know, as you're getting at the, the devil's in the details and there's questions around what your Senate majority supports, what the Assembly majority supports, what the governor supports, and um, and questions around sort of um, where you land on a few pieces of this and, and the details of that, that includes what are the details of some sort of good cause eviction bill, what right. are the details of incentives for growth that you can get, you know, some buy-in from people who are more focused on the sort of building and supply and growth side of things, to maybe come along on an agreement related to uh, something like the tenant protections of good cause eviction. Where do you see the, the most need for figuring out the details of the compromise? Because from where I sit, correct me if I'm wrong, at the end of the legislative session, there wasn't really broad support in both houses for any of it. You know, there, there, there wasn't, there wasn't necessarily full on support for 
even some sort of good cause eviction in both majorities, although it was sort of getting there with a with a scaled back version. Uh, there clearly wasn't full support for some sort of replacement for 421A to incentivize building. There obviously wasn't support for the governor's housing compact, which she's now dropped, which is the the idea of sort of required growth everywhere across the state. Um, so where do you see sort of the real focal points that the parties need to dig in on now to really get to get to some sort of agreement? What are the specifics of those sort of real touch points in this discussion? Well, yeah, Ben, I think you hit on a number of them already. Some of the details in a version of good cause eviction, some of the breakdown of what a new version of 421A would look like, what the requirements for affordability would be, what the percentage of uh, the development would have to be market rate uh, or below market. Uh, when you talk about transit-oriented development, um, some of the details there, what is the exact requirement uh, for how far from development it can be uh, when, when part of the contentious conversation in this space last year was around some of the mandates uh, that would require uh, some of these uh, developments to, to go forward. Uh, and so, yes, as in everything we do on the policy front, the devil is in the details. Uh, what is challenging for legislators, you know, you come back to the community, you hear from them that here's the number one issue that they're facing. They elect you, they send you up there to solve that problem. And you then have to go and negotiate uh, with 200 other people who are also representing their communities uh, and what they believe their solutions to the problem to be. And so it is an inherently, this is our democracy, uh, it, it is an inherently messy process uh, that requires many conversations uh, and, and, and that will require compromise. Uh, but I, I think the conditions are a little different this year than they were last year. And, and, and I'd say first that uh, we, uh, at least it is my hope that we're going to be tackling this earlier. We've heard from the leadership in both houses that this is going to be a priority for them. So we're not running up against a clock uh, in the same way that we were last year towards the end of session. Now, part of why we were running up against the clock uh, was that the budget was the budget process was prolonged uh, last year because it was dominated uh, by some of uh, the other issues that some of the, the, the leaders wanted to address. And I think that that's not going to be the case uh, this year. I think there is going to be uh, a laser-like focus on what we can do about affordability more broadly uh, and specifically uh, in this housing space. Uh, so wherever my colleagues and other various stakeholders stand on the details of some of these proposals, I think the guiding principle uh, should be that we cannot leave this session without having <clears throat> accomplished something meaningful uh, in this space. And if that means that we can't get everything done, uh, then that's okay. Uh, it is okay for us to not get the entire package done. Uh, it's very important for New Yorkers that we do something and do something meaningful. Uh, I'm hopeful and, and cautiously optimistic that we'll get there. My understanding is that the governor never even really got to a point where she would consider agreeing to some sort of version of good cause eviction because the legislature never really got to a point of agreeing to a replacement for 421A plus some sort of broader system of housing growth that was somewhere in the neighborhood of the housing compact, even if it was a very sort of incentive heavy 
not mandate uh, plan, you know, different from what the governor had proposed when she sort of went for it with this ambitious housing compact plan, that that was never really, that never really got there. Do you think that's where it gets to in the next few months before the budget is due, that there is something that the legislature can sort of present to the governor on this? Or how do you think it sort of finally comes together? Because the governor's opposition to good cause eviction is is pretty clear, right? She mm -hmm. has been hes hesitant to really say it, but she has been been clear that that's not on her agenda and she's very skeptical of it. Um, but the legislature never really came to her with some sort of real sort of significant trade on the supply side to even sort of see if there's a bargain to be had there. So wh wh where do you think this lands? Because it seems like a lot of legislators, including yourself, are sort of talking about okay, you do a version of good cause on on that side of the tenant protections and you do sort of replacement for 421A and some other things on the supply side, and that's your bargain. Do you think that'll be enough to get the governor's buy-in? Does the governor's buy-in matter here? Is the legislature ready to act alone? Before well, we move yeah. on, where 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 is that sort of where is that piece of of the negotiations headed, do you think? Well, I certainly hope that we get to a framework that resembles what you said, a significant tenant protection effort, including a version of good cause, uh, a significant financial incentive to build a version of 421A, other administrative things we can do to increase supply, uh, both some pretty straightforward things, uh, but also some out-of-the-box thinking on commercial conversions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those are the pillars uh, that 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 would we could come back to New Yorkers and say we've done something significant. Um, I think we can get there. Uh, what I'm what I'm hesitant about is, you know, these are really important issues. They are pressing issues. And if they were easy to do, they would have already been done and accomplished. Uh, and so there is an appreciation for um, how complicated some of these details can be. Uh, and I think it's easy for folks post negotiation or post the result post session to say what they would or would not have done uh, to the public. Uh, but I think we have now an opportunity uh, to start to borrow a phrase uh, with a clean slate uh, on this issue. And uh, for everyone to put their cards on the table uh, and in whatever constitutional capacity that is, whether it is the legislature, the governor, uh, uh, that we show New Yorkers that we are serious about these solutions. Uh, so I don't want to preempt uh, any of our housing chairs or any of our leaders uh, on what the contours of a deal or negotiation might look like. Uh, but I can say with great confidence uh, that this is top of mind for everyone. Uh, and as long uh, as I have any say and input uh, on this, I'm going to be pressing the issue uh, and really trying to bring uh, to bear the need and how important this is for most New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. All right. Since you referenced it there, one of your big accomplishments from 2023 was the passage of the Clean Slate Act, which the governor signed into law uh, towards the end of 2023 at a celebratory event. Um, this is going to give the opportunity for people who've been convicted of many crimes, done their time, uh, you know, completed their their sentence or punishment in whatever variety of ways to then uh, stay out of legal trouble for a while, depending on the type of violation it was, and then uh, have their their records sealed. 
without going through all of the the details of this, I think I think you know it's been well covered. Um, I wanted to ask you about it though. How do you sort of foresee measuring its success? Is it about reductions in recidivism? Is it um, some other metrics? What are you What are you going to be doing and tracking to see if the Clean Slate Act is successful? Well, I'll say initially that like many of the things we do in government, there are two components here. There is the moral force of the argument. This is the right thing to do. Uh, and what that inspires people uh, to accomplish in their lives. Uh, and there is the mechanical, uh, logistical implementation of the law uh, and whether or not those levers are working uh, to achieve the thing uh, that I mentioned on the moral force side. Uh, so my first impression is that in many ways it has already been a success because it has given hope to millions of New Yorkers. Uh, and I'm not just speaking in hyperbole. Uh, these calls, text messages, stops in the street from people that I know and don't know who have told me I now have hope to get my life on track because I know that I won't perpetually be punished for a mistake that I've made in the past. Uh, but on the mechanics and the delivery, um, I think we're going to see a lot more job applicants. Uh, I'd like to see a lot of job fairs. I'd like to see a lot of the big business institutions that were supportive of this effort uh, making uh, material efforts to recruit uh, in, in our communities and to recruit all over the state. Uh, and I think we are going to see that this was one of the biggest jobs bills that we have had the opportunity to pass in the state legislature because we're going to have a lot more people in the pool now. And I think that in and of itself will be a success. But I've also said repeatedly that this is a public safety bill. I think this is going to contribute to a reduction in crime. I think there are going to be more people uh, involved in our economy now that they are not forced into the shadows. And that's going to have a material effect on community safety and public safety. Uh, so I'm you know, watching and really proud uh, of the progress that has already been made. And uh, you know, once we see in a couple of years, uh, as New Yorkers start to trickle out and get this relief, uh, I think it's going to be one of the things that the legislature will be most proud of. Anything, there's been a lot of discussion about the number of vetoes that Governor Hochul issued towards the end of the year. Anything in particular that she vetoed that you're most upset about and you want to see the legislature really take on again here? Everybody's sort of dismissing the idea of veto overrides. I'm not quite sure why that is, but that seems to be sort of dismissed that that's not happening. It is obviously very hard mechanically when she's doing so many things around Christmas and New Year's and the end of the year and all that. But um, the veto overrides seem to be pretty much off the table. What do you, is there anything she vetoed in particular that you're most focused on seeing advance again in some way and getting to the finish line here in 2024? Well, you certainly start with your own bills that get vetoed, uh, mm -hmm. and and you know my, my wrongful conviction act bill was vetoed. Uh, this was a bill that would allow for innocent New Yorkers to have some means to declare their innocence in in court, uh, even if they are currently incarcerated. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can pick up that conversation next year. I was also you know, pretty disappointed to see another veto of the Grieving Families Act. Uh, this is uh, a bill that has a deep impact in, in our communities and, and certainly the ones that look like the one I represent. 
that uh, suffer from uh, some of these untimely deaths and violence uh, and uh, don't get compensated in the same way simply uh, because of how the law stands. And we stand, and New York does, uh, as an outlier in the in the country uh, for how we compensate uh, the people who, who wrongfully die. So uh, I'm hoping that we can get to a version uh, that all parties can can agree to. Uh, but this is part of the constitutional process. We pass bills. Uh, she signs the overwhelming majority of them. I think upwards of 800 this year out of the 1,000, uh, close to 1,000 or so that were passed. Uh, and so, you know, we live to fight another session. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, in addition to some of the ones that I mentioned, uh, that we continue to fight on, on some of the things that weren't able to pass at all uh, in the legislature, but deserve our attention. Mm -hmm. On your Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act, I figured that would be the, the thing you would mention first. <laughs> um, <laughs> the governor's sort of in her veto message seemed to say this isn't, this isn't necessary. Uh, we already have processes for this and, and uh, you know, sort of this is um, a burden that doesn't need to be added administratively. What, what, what's your response to her veto message and how do you get it passed this year without a veto? I, I, I would respectfully disagree with the governor on, on that assessment. New York is the third highest in the country on wrongful convictions. That is people who are innocent, who are convicted, who spend time in prison, uh, prison, by the way, that the state is paying $70,000 a year per incarcerated person, uh, only to eventually, hopefully, uh, challenge their conviction and get it overturned and then have a settlement be signed where the state and city pay out additional money. Uh, and so this is really the most inefficient way for us to be administering justice. An innocent person spending even a minute incarcerated uh, should be offensive to all of our notions of justice. And I think giving people the opportunity to challenge a wrongful conviction, to be clear, the judge would retain the discretion on whether or not to grant um, the, over, the overruling of the conviction. Uh, so this is really a procedural thing. I'm open to conversations about what this would mean uh, for various district attorney offices uh, and what their roles would be. Uh, you know, in many cases, they were the ones that, uh, uh, that helped move along these convictions. Uh, and so there's some institutional tension uh, in them, uh, you know, not wanting uh, a lot of that to be challenged. But we've also seen DAs demonstrate uh, an ability to review old convictions. And we see certainly my DA here in Brooklyn uh, has done that, Eric Gonzalez. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can get all of the stakeholders to the table again uh, and see how we can make this workable so that innocent New Yorkers aren't spending a single day in our correctional facilities. Mm -hmm. Other priorities for this year, uh, housing, getting that bill uh, that we were just discussing, the Wrongful Convictions Act uh, to the finish line fully. Um, other priorities, you are looking to see the passage and the funding of in the budget, a pilot towards uh, universal free after school. Say a little bit about that and what your proposal is and what you're hoping to see passed in this year's budget, which again is due by the April 1 start of the new state fiscal year. As it was last year, it's often uh, budgets have been have been late at different times for different lengths, but there's also been quite a few timely budget budgets over the years as Governor Cuomo had prioritized quite a bit. 
Um, so anyway, a budget is, is supposed to be due by April 1st, um, and you're looking to do something on after school. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, so I you know, went to public schools uh, in my district uh, my, my entire life, and I benefited greatly from after school programming uh, for a number of reasons. One, my mom uh, worked a lot, and it was tough for her. Uh, to come get me right after school or when when the bell tolled. Uh, and so I lived in after school programs um, uh, until my mom was able to come pick me up. Uh, and we have seen the research has shown that students who have the benefit of after school programming not only reinforce the educational principles that they learn throughout the day, uh, but it helps them uh, to do better academically. Uh, it keeps them out of risky activity. We know that from the hours of 2 to 6 p.m., according to the Department of Justice, uh, that is when the most juvenile violence occurs. Uh, and uh, the, there are also other benefits uh, uh, given certain communities' lack of resources uh, to cultural institutions uh, or to alternative um, um, learning opportunities. Uh, these are things that made me who I am today uh, and these are things that should be available to every New York kid, every New York family that should want to participate. You know, what we saw with universal pre-K uh, and at least the attempt at universal 3K, which is being uh, currently rolled back by, by this current administration, uh, was that the, the security that families were afforded to know that they wouldn't have to shell out thousands of dollars a month uh, to take care of the most precious thing that they have ever uh, created and been a part of their child. Uh, I think we should be looking to do something similar in the after school space. Uh, we should be thinking about how we could also address food insecurity in this by providing some meals at that time of day. Uh, and I think that this will be uh, in total a public safety tool. This will be an affordability tool. Uh, and this will show, I think, and demonstrate that we care about the future uh, in, in a real serious way. Now, this is going to require uh, uh, us to have some nuanced conversations because there have been attempts in the past uh, to fund after-school programming. We currently have some systems here in the state, the Empire State After-School Program, the Advantage Program. On the New York City level, we have the Comprehensive After-School Program, or COMPASS, uh, as it's known affectionately, uh, that runs it. Uh, and there are many providers in that network uh, that I think can be consolidated, um, uh, not the providers, but this, the various systems we have governing our after-school programming, uh, and really injected uh, with some serious money. Uh, when we think about the actual mechanics of how this would be done, uh, and the people that would be in the school building uh, after school hours, you talk to providers right now, after-school providers, uh, and they are suffering from staff shortages. Uh, because they cannot attract um, uh, talent to work for them for the prices that they can afford. Uh, and these are providers that have government contracts. This is what the taxpayers are paying for. Uh, so I think we need to have a serious conversation about what the wages would be for those after-school workers. Um, I think we should talk about more collaboration between the state and the city uh, on administering our after-school programs. Uh, I think the contracting process should be more transparent uh, and less long uh, term. Right now, we have five-year 
uh, contracts uh, that lock out a lot of other providers. Uh, so I'm hoping for us to really jumpstart this conversation and at minimum this year to put a down payment on the future of New York. Uh, that Some studies indicate uh, that for every dollar we put into after-school programming, we get a $3 back uh, return on that investment. Uh, and I think New Yorkers intuitively feel that uh, because childcare uh, happens to be uh, one of the most pressing price pressure points for families. And so uh, I think this is uh, going to be uh, a really interesting conversation uh, as we go into the legislative session. I have not spoken to a colleague or a stakeholder uh, who is opposed to this. Uh, what it's going to take is some seriousness in the approach. Uh, it's going to take painstaking conversations. It's going to take some nuance. It's good, big and complicated, a lot of stakeholders involved. But we have demonstrated that we have the ability and capacity to do big and complicated things. And what is more important than providing opportunity uh, for our future New Yorkers? So I'm excited about uh, this particular pilot uh, and I'm hoping uh, okay. that we can get this across the finish line in April. Speaking of big and complicated and difficult challenges, um, the migrant crisis that the city and state and, and country are dealing with that's been uh, perhaps most acute in New York City, um, you had called uh, again uh, recently for New York City with the support of the state to offer a work permit, a, a city work program of sorts for arriving migrants. Um, there's been some development since you wrote your piece um, in the Daily News calling for this program. What would you like to see? Are you still supportive of doing something like that? Um, where are you at and sort of how you think the city could better manage this crisis? And is that a program you'd still like to see the city and state work on together? Well, I'm still supportive. I know that this was an unorthodox proposal, but when faced with the scope of the challenge that we've seen over the past year or so with our newest New Yorkers coming, I think it's important for us to take an all hands on deck approach. And in my sense was that if the federal government was not going to come and assist us appropriately, that we had to step up and lead uh, and we had to take uh, what were perhaps some unconventional steps uh, in order to get those individuals to work uh, and to uh, provide uh, opportunity for other New Yorkers as well um, uh, to, to, to be involved. I think that there have been some missteps uh, in the handling uh, of this crisis. Uh, I certainly appreciate how big and challenging uh, it is. Uh, but I know uh, that there are many New Yorkers and networks that um, have in the place of uh, the government's failures on this crisis uh, have stepped up themselves. And uh, I was just uh, at a, a church service where I was having a conversation after the service um, uh, with someone who had recently come uh, and who was looking for some assistance. And the church uh, had been the one providing most of the support for this particular family. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of those loose networks uh, that sort of step up in this time. It's, it's important uh, for the city to, to be giving uh, them the resources and the connectivity that they need uh, in order to be successful. The state put in $2 billion last year uh, to give to the city on the uh, migrant crisis. And the city, uh, because it is a reimbursable uh, uh, payment, um, the city first has to spend down the money to get that back from the state. And my understanding 
uh, is that a lot of that money has not been spent down yet. Uh, so I'd love to continue to have conversations uh, to see why that has not been the case. Uh, and I think we need to be considering all other solutions uh, and, and potential approaches uh, because the, 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 the basic truth is people want to work. Businesses need employees. We should find a way to marry the two. This is the greatest city in the world and the greatest state in the country. Let's step up and do it. This is not an unprecedented challenge. This is something that is difficult, uh, but something that we can do. And and the this is the governor has focused on the work issue quite a bit and and tried to um, help the city get paperwork moving a little bit more to help people apply for asylum, apply for work permits. But she also said that the state had sort of looked at the idea of uh, state work authorization and that her team at least wasn't sure that the state could sort of protect uh, businesses that might hire migrants who would essentially, at least according to the federal government, be working illegally. It, it, do you not agree with that interpretation? Is that something you think the city should ignore and just try it? Well, my, my instinct on that was that, well, let the courts tell us then. Mm -hmm. If we are facing an, uh, uh, a, a challenge of this scope, uh, again, I don't. I hate to call this unprecedented. We used to get um, uh, these numbers uh, in New York City on a frequent basis, uh, but given all of the other challenges uh, that this has exposed, um, if the federal government's not going to help us, if they're not going to give us the resources that we need to deal with what is an inherently a federal problem, uh, we can't go to New Yorkers and say, "Well, the federal government isn't helping us, uh, so you're also out of luck." We have to do something. And my sense of reading the cases uh, and putting on my lawyer hat for a second uh, was that there was at least an argument to be made uh, that we could do something like this. Uh, and if the federal government disagrees and they want to go after businesses, uh, then let's see them do that. I, I am not convinced uh, that uh, that, that is what they want to be preoccupied with uh, at, at, at this current time, given what is happening. Uh, but uh, I think that the New Yorkers expect us to step up, uh, even if that is unconventional, even if it is potentially uh, challengeable in court. Uh, I think that we should, you know, even with those risks, uh, that, that we should step up and, and try to do something. So uh, I respectfully you know, disagree with the legal interpretation, but I'm also grateful uh, that they took a serious look at this. Mm -hmm. uh, and my hope is that it will put some more pressure uh, on all of the stakeholders involved uh, to help us relieve uh, some of the challenges we've seen. As you look ahead to this session in Albany, is it more money for the city or something else to deal with this challenge, this crisis that you think the state should be looking at um, either very quickly or in the budget. Um, oh. The mayor has repeatedly called for the governor to help resettle people and override um, local officials that have been denying uh, migrants from being moved elsewhere in the state. Uh, anything particular that you want to see happen under your jurisdiction at the state level on this? Yeah, well, you know, I think we, uh, in addition to the money that we put in in last year's budget, I'd like to see what the plan is uh, on spending that down and where that is being directed to. Uh, I think there is a conversation to be had around spreading 
um, around some of the the, the, the burden uh, of increased services. Uh, you know, I think that there are also places outside of the city uh, counter to the narrative that has has been set uh, in, in some media outlets that would welcome more uh, individuals there to do work uh, and to support their local economy. And uh, I'd love to be in conversation uh, with the leaders in those areas across the state uh, that that would that would welcome uh, this type of opportunity. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, having, uh, I think, honest, uh, even if difficult conversations um, uh, around what we can do to expedite uh, the, the 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 worker permit process. Uh, so there's that a lot. Seems for us to be to the do. linchpin of everything. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, I, and you know, so I think we have, um, you know, I think we have a, a lot of opportunity uh, on our uh, on our agenda, and 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 hopefully people are willing to engage this conversation. Uh, without uh, being disagreeable and immediately retreating to whatever partisan corner uh, will, will benefit them most at, at that time. That's a real, real challenge for us uh, that require, I think, the grownups in the room uh, to be serious about tackling the problem. We are in our last few minutes here with State Senator Zellner Myrie, a Brooklyn Democrat. Appreciate all the time here as we get into 2024 and the agenda in Albany and your agenda for your district in Brooklyn. Uh, last few questions for you. Um, one of the big topics related to the city that's coming up uh, on, on your plate in Albany mm -hmm. is mayoral control of New York City schools. What's your stance on whether that should be renewed and if there's any changes that you think should be made or duration of renewal? Where are you at on, on that big topic that will obviously be the number one ask where Mayor Adams comes to testify or near the number one ask uh, an extension of that. He was pretty disappointed to have only gotten a couple of years uh, when okay. it got extended. Uh, so where are you at on mayoral control in New York City schools? You know, I think it's important when we are talking about mayoral control, and I know this is hard to do, but it's important for us to separate what that implies uh, from the current occupant of the office uh, uh, and really focus on what is going to be best for the kids. Uh, not, not what's best for anybody else, but what is best for the kids? What is a system uh, that will best allow them to thrive, best allow them to learn uh, and become uh, the amazing people that we know they are destined to be? Uh, and uh, I want to hear more from the constituents on this. There, there is a part of that renewal process, uh, as you might recall, uh, we required uh, there to be public hearings uh, mm -hmm. throughout the city. Uh, there will be one in my district next week. Um, uh, at one of our high schools. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing what the community has to say uh, on mayoral control, whether or not they feel that this has been successful for their child and their family. Uh, and then we'll make the decision accordingly. You know, I grew up, um, I was in elementary school in the early 90s, the early to mid 90s, uh, under the old system uh, prior to the Bloomberg uh, administration's um, uh, winning of mayoral control. Uh, and I think that there were some things in that that, that old system uh, that were good. Uh, certainly, uh, I had a world-class public school education uh, under the old system. Uh, but I think that there are some benefits uh, to the accountability uh, that, that mayoral control affords as well. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the community has to say and then um, I'm having the discussion with my colleagues. Like many other things you said in this conversation, I, I want to keep going on that, but I'm going to move on. Uh, speaking of your you know, world-class education, you wound up, I believe, at Brooklyn Tech, 
uh, so, and we could get into the SHSAT <laughs> and all that, but we won't do that right now. Um, <laughs> in our last few minutes here, you, yeah. uh, as you just referred to uh, whoever the mayor is, the current occupant of the office, <laughs> um, as has been widely reported, including by me and some pieces in New York Magazine and, and plenty of places elsewhere, uh, and you've discussed in other interviews, uh, you know, people are approaching you about running for mayor in 2025. Obviously, you're listening. People close to you are saying things. I think somebody close to you told uh, Bloomberg, uh, the publication, that you've got a whole lot of financial commitments if you decide to run. So just tell us a little bit about sort of what would what what are what are your top considerations in making that choice? I mean, obviously, it's something you're considering. Uh, people, there are people asking you to do it. Um, a in your mind, what are the biggest reasons that Eric Adams may not deserve a, a second term here? And and B, what are your top sort of considerations as you're looking at this? Yeah, so, you know, Ben, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, it is, you know, certainly uh, flattering to be in the conversation. Uh, and uh, I have taken um, uh, very seriously uh, what have people have approached me about and in, in, in sort of their suggestions and what uh, potential uh, path could be. Uh, but as I've said uh, elsewhere, and, and I'll say here, uh, two, it is not the preeminent thing on my mind. All of the things that we discussed uh, over the length of this podcast, uh, the chiefly among those being affordability, uh, that those those are the things that, that I'm focused on, because that's what most of the people that talk to me, that's what they're, they're focused on. Uh, but, but I will say this, you know, both of my parents came to this country worked in factories in Brooklyn uh, because there was a promise of New York City. Uh, not a guarantee of the outcome, but a promise of opportunity. And that promise had been delivered on uh, for my parents. My dad came here, he worked in a factory for many years and he became a teacher, uh, taught uh, in our public school systems for 20 years and recently uh, retired. Uh, my mom, after working in the factory, became a small business owner. Uh, and uh, has now worked in the healthcare space. Uh, and so that that promise was delivered in many ways uh, that through their ability to climb the ladder and to send their kid to public schools here in the city and eventually have that kid, a son of immigrants, uh, be a state representative for over 320,000 people. That promise is broken right now. Uh, we do not, and I'm saying we in a very personal sense, I just got married, I'm thinking about how I'm going to build a family. We do not have a sense of whether or not we can have that same promise delivered in this generation. We can't afford childcare. We can't afford housing. We can't afford to buy food. We can't afford to buy medication. Uh, the promise of being the best person that you can be because this city is the best city in the world uh, has not been delivered. Uh, and my goal right now uh, is to try to deliver as much as I can uh, on that promise. And any conversation uh, about whether or not we will serve in some other capacity, uh, I think, can wait uh, until we demonstrate uh, that we can do that this legislative session and in the coming months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you've uh, you've you've laid out a bit of of the thinking and the and the sort of backstory and uh, and uh, what sounds like contours of a. Uh, of a stump discussion to me, uh, having been out on the campaign trail, but um, there is some time to decide still. This June 2025 primary is a year and a half away, so you've probably got, uh, as you said, through this session to sort of 
be working on these things and thinking about it some more. So we'll check back in with you uh, down the line. As I like to give my guests in closing, is there any one thing that we didn't get to that you just want to touch on quickly? There's always, almost always something that somebody comes on and wants to talk about that I don't ask them about or they don't find a way to work <laughs> in. So is there any one more thing you want to touch on that either you want to comment on that's been in the news or is a priority for you or anything like that? And of course, feel free to say no. and We can say goodbye. Yeah, and no, I'll just say very quickly that we're going to be starting our legislative activity next week. And as we have done in the past five years in the Senate, we will start with passing a set of elections related bills. Uh, and while that is always important, uh, we are in a presidential year uh, and in a presidential year where our democracy, not in a hyperbolic way, but in a very real way, is on the line. And I think it's important for every New Yorker to pay attention to what's happening in this space early, uh, to do so now. Obviously, have your plan to vote. Uh, obviously, have your plan to engage your neighbors in voting, uh, but also think about what role you are going to play in upholding the basic principles and tenets of our democracy and the pillars of our republic. So uh, stay tuned on some of yeah, what get, we're going to be doing. Give, us, ahead, one, ahead, give us one item on that agenda. What's I, This is on my list was to ask you what's yeah. going for the, election, <laughs> yeah. the elections committee that you chair. <laughs> Uh, what's one item on that list? So, Give us yeah, a little. So, so, yeah, one one of the things is ballot drop boxes. This is something that um, uh, we have discussed in the past, but would make it easier to drop absentee ballots um, uh, uh, into that ballot box, not requiring um, a full trip uh, to the polling site. Uh, but we're going to be doing a number of other things in that space. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention at the closing uh, that we lost last week a legend. Uh, in the voting rights space and in the democracy space, Dr. John Flateau, uh, who I had the honor of knowing, uh, but who also taught at Mega Evers College uh, in my district uh, and who, you know, began his career as, you know, chief of staff to then Mayor Dinkins, uh, a true, true legend uh, in this space and a, a spirit that we want to uphold. We will be renaming one of the bills that we intend to pass next week after uh, John Flateau, uh, and we'll be doing uh, much more to uphold his legacy. So uh, to his family, our prayers, our condolences, uh, to the community that he served, to the many, many mentees and students uh, that he served, uh, you are in our hearts, you are in our thoughts, our prayers, uh, and we will be doing our best uh, uh, in the state legislature to ensure that his legacy is well respected. Mm. Uh, well said, and and I know that uh, there's been a lot of that sentiment out there. Uh, including by my colleague here at New York Law School, Jeff Weiss, who uh, is a redistricting uh, expert, and I believe you know. And that's another okay. topic that uh, we didn't get to, but we'll talk about uh, down the line, which is redistricting and and uh, and even preparations for the next census. I want to talk to you about at some that's point, right. but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> State Senator Zellner Myrie, appreciate all the time. We'll check in again soon, but thank you for joining me and for all the time and thoughts. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the way, and uh, talk to you when we're back on. Thank you. Thank you.